Welcome to tape number 12 of Gleanings in the Godhead, Part 2, Excellencies which pertain to God the Son as Christ by A.W. Pink. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to our reading of Part 2 of Gleanings in the Godhead by A.W. Pink, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing on with chapter 18, the quintessence of Christ. This resemblance to Christ appears necessary from the communion which all believers have with him in the same spirit of grace and holiness. Christ is the firstborn among many brethren, and God anointed him with the oil of gladness above thy fellow. Psalm 45.7 That oil of gladness is an emblem of the Holy Spirit, and God gives the same to each of the fellows or partners. Where the same spirit and principle is, there the same fruits and works must be produced according to the proportions of the spirit of grace bestowed. This is the very reason the Holy Spirit is given to believers, but we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Also, the very honor of Christ demands conformity of Christians to his example. In what other way can they close the mouths of those who reject their master and vindicate his blessing, blessed name from the reproaches of the world? How can wisdom be justified of her children except in this way? The wicked will not read the inspired record of his life in the scriptures. Therefore, there is all the more need to have his excellencies set before them in the lives of his people. The world sees what we practice as well as hears what we profess. Unless there is consistency between our profession and practice, we cannot glorify Christ before a world which has cast him out. Then there must be an inward conformity to Christ before there can be any resemblance on the outside. There must be an experimental oneness before there can be a practical lightness. How can we possibly be conformed to him in external acts of obedience unless we are conformed to him in those springs from which such actions proceed? We must live in the Spirit before we can walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5.25 Let this mind be in you which also was in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.5 For the mind should regulate all our other faculties. Therefore we are told... For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Romans 8.6 What was the mind which was in Christ Jesus? It was that of self-abnegation and devotedness to the Father. 
that we must begin with inward conformity to Christ is evident from our text. After saying, Learn of me, he at once added, For I am meek and lowly in heart. We need to attend closely to our Lord's order in this passage, insisting we cannot possibly learn of him in the sense meant here, unless we have taken his yoke upon us until we surrender ourselves to him. It is not merely to an intellectual learning of him which Christ calls us, but to an experimental, effectual, and transforming learning. And in order to obtain that which we must be completely subject to him, John Newton suggested that there is yet another relation between these two things. Not only is our taking of Christ's yoke upon us an indispensable requirement for our learning of him, but also our learning of him is duly appointed learning of him is his duly appointed means to enable us to wear his yoke. Learn of me. Be not afraid to come to me for help and instruction, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Here is encouragement. You need not hesitate to come to such a one, the maker of heaven and earth, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one before whom all the angels of heaven prostrate themselves in homage, yet the one who is the friend of sinners. He is able to solve our every problem and supply strength for the weakest, because he is man, possessed of human sensibilities. Therefore he is capable of being touched with the feeling of our infirmities. The following is a quote, a long quote from John Newton. Quote, Learn of me. I know why these things appear so hard. It is owing to the pride and impatience of your heart. To remedy this, take me for your example. I require nothing of you but what I have performed before you and on your account. In that path I mark out for you, you may perceive my own footsteps all the way. This is a powerful argument, a sweet recommendation, the yoke of Christ to those who love him that, and that he bore it himself. He is not like the Pharisees whom he censured, censured Matthew 23, verse 4, on this very account, who bound heavy, heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and laid them on men's shoulders, but they themselves would not move them with one of their fingers. 1. Are you terrified with the difficulties attending your profession, disheartened by hard usage, or too ready to show resentment against those who oppose you? Learn of Jesus, admire and imitate his constancy. Consider him who endured the contradiction of sinners against himself. Hebrews 12.3 Make a comparison so the word imports between yourself and him, between the contradiction which he endured and that which you are called to struggle with. Then surely you will be ashamed to complain. Admire and imitate his meekness. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. He wept for his enemies and prayed for his murderers. Let the same mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. 2. Do you find it hard to walk steadfastly in his precepts, especially in some particular instances, when the maxims of worldly prudence and the pleadings of flesh and blood are strongly against you? Learn of Jesus. He plead not he pleased not himself, Romans fifteen three. He considered not what was safe and easy, but what was the will of his heavenly Father. Entreat him to strengthen you with strength in your soul, 
that as you bear the name of his disciples, you may resemble him in every part of your conduct and shine as lights in a dark and selfish world to the glory of his grace. Three, are you tempted to repine at the dispensations of divine providence? Take Jesus for your pattern. Did he say when the unspeakable sufferings he was to endure for sinners were just coming upon him, the cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? John 18.11 And shall we presume to have a will of our own, especially when we further reflect that as his sufferings were holy on our account, so also, so all our sufferings are by his appointment and are designed by him to promote our best, that is, our spiritual and eternal welfare? End quote. That, again, was a quote from John Newton. Learn of me. Christ then taught his disciples not only by precept, but also by example, not only by word of mouth, but also by his perfect life of obedience to the Father's will. When he uttered these words, Matthew 11:29, he was wearing the yoke and personally exemplified meekness and lowliness. What a perfect teacher showing us in his own selflessness what these graces really are. He did not associate with the noble and mighty, but made fishermen his ambassadors and sought out the most despised, so that he was dubbed a friend of publicans and sinners. And learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Those heavenly graces, the roots from which all other spiritual excellencies spring, can only be learned from Christ. The colleges and seminaries cannot impart them. Preachers and churches cannot bestow them. No self-culture can attain unto them. They can only be learned experimentally at the feet of Christ, only as we take his yoke upon us. They can only be learned as we commune with him and follow the example he left us. They can only be learned as we pray that we may be more fully conformed to his image and trustfully seek the enablement of his spirit to mortify the deeds of the body. What causes have we to mourn that there is so little meekness and loneliness in us? How we need to confess unto God our lamentable deficiency. Yet merely mourning does not improve matters. We must go to the root of our folly and judge it. Why have I failed to learn these heavenly graces? Has it not been said of me as of Israel, Ephraim is a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke? Not until my proud spirit is broken and my will completely surrendered to Christ can I truly learn of him. In taking Christ's yoke upon us and learning of him is a daily thing. Christianity is far more than a creed or ethical code. It is being conformed practically to the image of God's Son. So many make the great mistake in supposing that coming to Christ and taking his yoke is a single act which may be done once and for all. Not so. It is to be a continuous and daily act. To whom coming again and again as unto a living stone. 1 Peter 2.4 We need to continue as we begun. The mature Christian who has been 50 years in the way needs Christ as urgently now as he did the first moment he was convicted of his lost condition. He needs to daily take his yoke and learn of him. Chapter 19, The Leadership of Christ For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, Matthew 11.30 As pointed out, see chapter 18, the yoke employed figuratively is the symbol of service. Uh, 
such an instrument united oxen together in pulling the plow or wagon so they worked for their master. Our text refers to the service of Christ in contrast to the service of sin and Satan. The devil promises his subject a grand time if they follow his promptings, but sooner or later they discover the way of transgressors is hard. Proverbs 13.15 Sin deceives. It deluded, its deluded victims imagine they enjoy liberty while indulging the lust of the flesh, but when failing health suggests they had better change their ways, they discover they are bound by habits they cannot break. Sin is a far more cruel taskmask than were the Egyptians to the Hebrews, and the service of Satan imposes far heavier burdens than Pharaoh ever placed upon his slaves. But my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This declaration of the Savior may also be the sequel to his opening words in the passage. There he invited those who labored and were heavy laden, which may be understood in a twofold sense those who were sick of sin and bowed down by a sense of its guilt and those who labored to meet the requirements of divine holiness and are cast down by their inability to do so. Those who seek to fulfill the letter of God's law, far from finding it easy, discover it very hard, while those who endeavor to work out a righteousness of their own to gain God's esteem find it a heavy task and not a light burden. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Exactly what is the relation between this verse and the ones preceding? To which of the previous clauses is it more, uh, mo more immediately connected? We cannot discover that any commentator has made any specific attempt to answer this question. We deem it wise to link these closing words of the Redeemer with each of the earlier utterances. Thus, come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is encouragement for us to come and prove that he will give us rest. Take my yoke upon you. You need not fear to do so, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And learn of me, for not only am I meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, but for my yoke is easy. For my yoke is easy. The Greek word is varied, variously rendered good, kind, gracious. There is nothing to chafe or hurt, rather it is pleasant to wear. The question has been raised if Christ spoke absolutely or relatively. That is, did he describe what the yoke was in itself, or how that yoke appeared to his people? We believe both senses are included. Assuredly, Christ's yoke or service is a light or gracious one in itself, for all his commandments are framed by infinite wisdom and love and are designed for the good of those who receive them. So far from being a harsh tyrant who imposes hard duties for the mere sake of exerting his authority, Christ is a gracious master who ever has in mind the welfare and highest interest of his subjects. His commandments are not grievous in themselves, but, benef but beneficent. The father of lies affirms Christ's yoke to be difficult and heavy. But not only is the yoke of Christ easy in itself, but also it should be so in the sense and apprehension of his people. It will be so if they do as he bids. The unregenerate find the yoke of Christ irksome and heavy, for it grates against the carnal nature. The service of Christ is drudgery to those in love with the world and who find their delight in fleshly, fleshly lust. 
But to one whose heart has been captivated by Christ, to be under his yoke is pleasant. If we come to Christ daily to be renewed by his grace, to yield ourselves afresh to his rule, if we sit at his feet to be taught of him the loveliness of meekness and lowliness, if we enjoy spiritual communion with him and partake of his rest, then whatsoever he commands is delightful to us, and we prove for ourselves that wisdom's ways are ways of pleasantness, and all our paths are peace. Proverbs 3.17 Here the Christian may discover the most conclusive evidence that a good work of grace has begun in his heart. How many poor souls are deeply distressed over this point? They ask themselves continually, Have I been genuinely converted, or am I yet in a state of nature? They keep themselves in needless suspense because they fail to apply the scriptural methods of confirmation. Instead of measuring themselves by the rules and the word, they await some extraordinary sensation in their heart. But many have been deceived at this point, for Satan can produce happy sensations in the heart and deep impressions on the mind. How much better is the testimony of an enlightened conscience? Judging things by the word of God, it perceives that the yoke of Christ is easy and light. But this principle works both ways. If we find by experience that Christ's yoke is easy and his burden is light, then what must be said of a vast number of professing Christians who, by their own conduct, often avow that the Lord's service is burdensome? Though members of evangelical churches, may we conclude they are of a class which, who have a name that they live and yet are dead. Revelation 3. Certainly we cannot allow that Christ made a false prediction of his yoke. Then only one alternative is left. We are obliged to regard as strangers to godliness those who find a life of communion with the Lord and devotedness to his service dull or irksome. Do not misunderstand this point. We are not affirming that Christian life is nothing but a bed of roses or that when a person comes to Christ and takes his yoke, that his troubles end. Not so. Instead, in a real sense, his troubles only then begin. It is written, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 Wearing the yoke of Christ unites us to him, and union with him brings us into fellowship with his sufferings. The members of Christ's body share the experience of their head. The world hated and persecuted him, and it hates those who bear his image. But the more closely we walk with Christ, the more we will suffer the hostility of Satan. For his rage is stirred up when he finds he has lost another of his captives. Not only does the one who truly comes to Christ and takes upon him his yoke evoke the hatred of Satan and of the world, but also he is now the subject of inward conflicts. The corrupt nature which was his at birth is neither removed nor refined when he becomes a Christian. It remains within him unchanged, but now he is more conscious of its presence and its vileness. Moreover, that evil nature opposes every movement of the holy nature he received at the new birth. The flesh lusts after against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other. Galatians 5.17 this discovery of the plague of his own heart and that within there is opposition to holy aspirations is a source of deep anguish to the child of God. He often cries, O wretched man that I am, 
Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7.24 We cannot affirm that the Christian's life is one of unclouded sunshine, yet we must not convey the impression the believer's lot is far from being envious and that he is worse off than the unbeliever. Far from it. If the Christian uses diligently the means of God's appointing, he will possess a peace which passes all understanding and experience joys the worldling knows nothing about. The world may frown and the devil rage against him, but an approving conscience, the smile of God, the communion with fellow believers, and the assurance of eternity with his beloved are ample compensation. What is there in the yoke of Christ which makes such amends for the enmity it evokes and the suffering it entails, so that the believer will attest that it is not an easy one? In seeking to answer this question, we shall avail ourselves of the help of John Newton's sermons in outline. First, those who wear the yoke of Christ act from principle which makes all things easy. This is love. Any yoke will chafe when resisted, but even one of cast iron would be pleasant if it is lined with felt and padded with wool. And this is what renders the yoke of Christ easy to his people. It is lined with love, his to them and theirs to him. Whenever the shoulder becomes sore, look to the lining. Keep the lining right, and the yoke will be no more a burden to us than wings are to a bird or a wedding ring to a bride. Scripture records that when Jacob served a hard master seven years for Rachel, they seemed but a few days to him for the love he had for her. What a difference it makes when we perform a difficult task, whether for a stranger or a dear friend, an exacting employer or a close relative. Affection makes the hardest joy easy, but there is no love like that which a redeemed sinner bears to him who died in his stead. We are willing to suffer much to gain the affection of one we highly esteem, even though we are not sure of success, but when we know the affection is reciprocal, it gives added strength for the endeavor. The believer does not love with uncertainty. He knows that Christ loved him before he had any love for the Savior. Yes, loved him even when his own heart was filled with enmity against him. This love supplies two sweet and effectual motives in service. Please continue on to the next tape in the series. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T-6-L-3-T-5. 
You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.